the world we live in now, obviously we all know it's been turned upside down. The reality is, you know, this has escalated the prevalence and severity mm -hmm. of individuals struggling with behavioral health disorders. When I say behavioral health, that's the umbrella of what we consider kind of mental health issues, emotional or uh, thought disorders such as schizophrenia and addiction. So that all that's kind of under that, that same umbrella. And so there, there's more of that now, understandably. People were isolated. People, you know, were not able to work. Everything in their life had been disrupted. Kids mm -hmm. weren't able to go to school. And so I think we're going to feel the reverberations of this for quite a while. Hey there, this is Ben. Thanks for tuning in to Lead the Team. Before we jump in, we just broke into the top 3% of all podcasts globally, and that's largely due to the support of listeners just like you. I invite you to subscribe so you're notified when we release a new episode and also leave a quick review. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hello, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back. I have Kurt Hooks, who is the CEO of Virginia Beach Psychiatric Center, the largest adult acute care community-based facility in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Kurt has worked in crisis and acute health care and behavioral health for 22 years as a clinician, clinical supervisor, entrepreneur, and operator, including introducing many innovative programs to address addiction and jail diversion. That's right. We're going to maybe we'll double click on that and learn a little, little bit more about that today. By the way, Kurt has a PhD in counselor education from Old Dominion University master's degree in public health and professional counseling, and as a licensed professional counselor and supervisor, Kurt, welcome to Lead the Team. Ben, thank you so much. It is a privilege to be able to speak with you today, and uh, hopefully there'll be some good takeaways for you and, the audience, and your audience today. Uh, so glad you're with us today. Before we get any further, just for the listeners, innovative programs to address addiction and jail diversion, specifically in the mental health arena. Why is this so important to leaders across the land and what do they need to understand about this? Sure. So we understand um, more and more that the proliferation of addiction, especially opioid addiction and that mm -hmm. epidemic has just swept across the U.S. Um, in such dramatic um, and sad uh, proportions and outcomes. Mm -hmm. And um, having previously worked in the other healthcare spaces, including as an emergency department, um, as a crisis mm -hmm. clinician, overseeing a group of, of crisis clinicians, what we would see oftentimes are individuals coming in with opioid addictions in particular um, and either wanting to get detox or to stop, um, or they've come in with a nearly lethal overdose and literally have been revived. And there just wasn't mm -hmm. many options to refer mm -hmm. these individuals to. So as a clinician um, and as a team in the emergency department team, you know, the physicians, all of us, um, it feels horrible to sit there and talk to someone who's desperate to get help or desperately needs that kind of help, life-saving help. 
and really not have a lot to offer. And mm-hmm. so uh, what I had the good fortune to be able to walk out in partnership with um, some other academics out of state that helped guide us mm-hmm. and a couple of our emergency department physicians um, who said, hey, we, we can buy into this is we implemented what's called a, an MAT program, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially um, uh, providing an alternative to the opioid and, and inducing that medication, Suboxone is what it's called, hmm. um, at the time that someone is coming to seek help and then bridging them over into a community-based provider to continue in that care. Now, someone would have to come in and be, be eligible. We had this defined eligibility and, and a, a whole protocol that we had to build out um, and all the infrastructure to have um, you know, other mm. providers mm-hmm. be available for referrals for individuals that, that we were um, providing this type of intervention for. Uh, but it was, I think, the first or second in, this, in Virginia um, in terms of emergency departments to implement this program um, with the idea, again, being, hey, these are very pregnant moments with individuals that are desperate for help, um, could easily die from from this uh, addiction, this disease. And um, let's let's not just do the same old, same old. Let's let's meet them where they are, um, or at least where they're coming to us. And most often the emergency department is the de facto place that mm-hmm. people in crisis, any type of crisis will go. And let's provide something real and real time for them that's hopefully meaningful um, and helps potentially save their lives helps them get back on track in their lives, quality of life, um, all those mm-hmm. things. And so, so what that is it? Really, what is it? What is the chemical or what is the medicine that you're administering? This or, so it's, it's called Suboxone. Okay. Um, and MAT stands for medication assisted treatment. So um, in large parts, um, addiction medicine, um, especially as it pertains to opioids, um, now has shifted towards kind of a, a disease management model um, where we know okay. that yeah. you know, the with the outcomes um, for someone that just tries to stop and then relapses over and over again. So the Suboxone um, is a uh, it's a medicine that involves um, a molecular structure that um, helps to alleviate the withdrawal. It sort of tickles the dopamine receptors, but not gotcha, the way that okay. someone gets gains any type of uh, meaningful kind of euphoric effect, but it, it, it helps to just um, stall out um, you know, the discomfort, the severe discomfort of the withdrawal. Um, and then it has another um, component, which is um, a, a, an antagonist um, called naloxone. And that's what we give to individuals to kind of um, revive them when they've had mm. an, an opioid overdose. So okay. if someone is using too much of the suboxone, it's not going to feel super comfortable because it it has that other element um, in it to, to kind of create these guardrails and 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 um, areas that from it from being kind of a recreation okay. type of substance. Got it. So there's a lot of benefit in this. It sounds like, and I love it. As a leader, uh, we and for the leaders listening, we have to be open to improvements to technology and to uh, new ways to help our customers and our employees. And this is a way to do that. I I, I assume for so long, it was like, hey, we're going to send you to rehab. 
and then you're going to get better and then you'll be back and you'll just be burst at the seams with ready to take on life. But the addiction piece of this can be so severe. So I'm kind of experienced this in a couple of different ways. Number one is taking on really a, a change in mindset in the, the healthcare world on, on how you're going to treat something. When, and, and leaders sometimes who face a situation where their company's working on something and they're like, this is the way we've always done it. This is the way we're going to fix the situation. And then I think it was Winston Churchill who says something like, uh, um, occasionally you have to look at the results, no matter how beautiful the strategy or no matter how beautiful the strategy, sometimes you actually have to look at results. And so I commend you on that. I think that's really cool. And then secondly, y'all, the opioid crisis is bad. Okay. And you probably, if you have a team, right, of a hundred, 200, a couple thousand people, opioids are probably there, right? Everywhere. Right, Kurt. I mean, it's happening. Uh, and I'm just curious, you know, what what would be what would your advice be for leaders who suspect they have employees that are that are really being affected by this? Because they're sort of it's just it's complicated when you're talking about a work environment and people's personal health care decisions. Uh, what would be your advice for a first step for for a leader to take if they suspect that this is affecting their team in some way? It's a great question, Ben. And so when I have the opportunity to get in front of audiences of employers, uh, such as with our local chamber of commerce, very active chamber with large employers, I, I you know, I'm always sure to kind of let the audience know, um, hey, you know, that um, there's a, there's this stigma and, and it's real and employees are going to be um, frightened to come in and um, reach out for help. And, and there may be clues or signals that someone is impaired um, by this or other substances mm -hmm. or impaired by behavioral health issues, whatever it may be. But with opioids in particular, um, I, you know, so I, I, I what I say is, have you created what have you done to create any type of condition where it can feel safe for someone with okay. an addiction or other mental health disorder? Come and say, hey, um, I, I need to get some help for this. Um, and in reality, we know that addiction and mental health disorders impact productivity. You know, there, there's a bottom line scenario that can kind of speak to employers as well here. But I think there's also a lot of mm -hmm. personal um, ties and experiences that you know they've had in their own families or maybe experienced personally. So this kind of resonates with them, with them when I ask that question. And so really they need to have the infrastructure um, and culture of, you know, it's safe to come and, and talk to us about these things. We're going to support you um, to the extent possible in your journey to get help with this. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, want you, we want you back unless there's been some sort of a major unsafe infraction, obviously, or something, um, you know, that, that's a red level um, or, or equivalent thereof. And, and, you know, also be ready for that conversation. Mm -hmm. It can catch it can catch an employer on its heels and catch it, even an HR department on its heels. Um, so, you know, maybe think about what would that conversation look like and, and are you ready to have it? And if you're not, then how do you get ready and, and develop that competency for your organization? Where, where do you think the line is between 
I don't want to get my employees personal business because I don't need that drama in my life. And Hey, we're a, we're a family sort sort of some companies wouldn't describe themselves that way, but we're a community of people who are trying to get a result and we're trying to create a team environment. So it's like we're, we're and they're not, there's probably not one perfect answer on this, but because I'm curious, cause you're, you had, you're in both worlds, right? You see the clinical side and you're a CEO. Correct. So you have a very unique vision on, on this. Where, where do you, how do you think through drawing that line of, of, of how far you go? Yeah, I, I, I think that my perspective is if it's something that someone recognizes is a problem or suspects it is, Mm-hmm. Um, that that you go for it because you know, and I talked to my team about this. Um, obviously, our frontline workers, um, you know, for them to be working in an impaired way is it's unsafe. Um, number one, or or in a suspected you know scenario in which that that might be the case, and and um, so there's a there's a quality and productivity issue to consider um, and safety issue. Um, but not just that, you know, every part of an organization um an ecological sense is a body you know so mm-hmm. there there are no non-essential individuals or departments um so we focus a lot in healthcare right now on our direct care staff and and the workforce shortages and burnout but you know these yep. support uh departments these and what we call ancillary departments it all ties back to your consumer base and what you're doing to help them. In our case, in healthcare and behavioral health, it's it's patients. Um, and so I don't think you ignore it. Um, I don't think you kind of try to bracket it away. Um, obviously, you can't do everything all the time for every employee, especially depending upon the size um, and structure of the organization itself. Um, but I would say perhaps, you know, in, in a case in which someone may be um, unsafe, either colleagues or employees by concerns over impairment that the employer takes the initiative, or if if the employee takes the initiative, we want to be ready. We want to stand ready mm-hmm. and let signal to them, let them know, hey, it's safe for you to talk about this with us. Um, and, and we're ready to uh, provide some resources and help for you. And we're going to, we're going to stand by you to the extent we possibly can. I hope, I hope that's a, yeah answer yeah i think it's helpful it's a call to action from what you're saying whatever what i'm hearing i'm interpreting this as like hey i mean you listed out like 10 different ways and that this is impacting your bottom line and so i mean it's 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 a big decision for leaders to make but i think once you start taking the approach of bottom line personal safety quality uh it's time to kickstart this conversation and if you're waiting for your HR team to kick off the conversation, you might be waiting a very long time because That's they're great probably, point. They, yep. They're they're worried about benefits and all that stuff. And you're talking about the leaders in charge of crafting the culture and the communication approach. And this is this is an important conversation uh, for lead the team nation. That's something to think about. Now, I could spend all this time going about this, but I want to dig into your background here a little bit more here. So what was your first job and how did it influence your leadership approach today, Kurt? Absolutely. So I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a first job because it was in my first um, iteration of graduate school in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. 
and it was my internship. And uh, so here I am, a young green clinician, probably all 23 years old. Um, and I matched with this internship. Uh, we had to apply. And this particular internship was through Emory, and it was uh, a physician residency um, internship in which um, they had a behavioral health portion to their residency for primary care. And so I didn't really know quite what I was getting into, but when, when I showed up, I realized I had this really great um, mentor, um, supervisor, clinical supervisor, um, but my supervision was really intense. Um, and just to give you some examples, I was supervised and providing counseling, practicing my skills for the first time. Um, by a group of physicians in, in real time, either through a two-way mirror or on video with hmm. a bug in my ear, with a telephone in the room. Um, and it was quite intimidating. And, and my supervisor um, didn't pull any punches, so to speak, in terms of you know who was assigned to my caseload. So very complex hmm. cases. Um, and you know I, I was overwhelmed at times or hmm. felt that way. Um, yeah. And but I, I learned to um, deal with with that intensity and to experience that intensity for it to become normalized for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so go just the deep end of the ocean scenario, um, and that intensity um, not only helped me develop really good skills um, with that level of, of supervision, uh, but also um, I, I got accustomed. We're very early on to high intensity. And then fast forward to my first job, which professional job, which was here at this hospital as a crisis clinician. And I'm either here out in the community um, evaluating individuals and their families to determine if they need to be hospitalized in a behavioral health facility. Um, So making that decision um, Mm. and guiding people through that process is very intense. It's highly consequential. And so very early on, what I'm getting at is that um, I was exposed to very consequential, very consequential scenarios, very intense scenarios, um, and to kind of survive and then thrive um, in those types of settings, the intensity that comes along now with this type of role in a different way had to become normalized to me. Yeah, it sounds like you sort of went through a boot camp. Uh, You were... Like the military is really intense and, and you learn to operate under that intensity and, or, or it's like you're uh, another crazy metaphor. I'm not sure this really applies, but it's, I think of it like you're on deck in a baseball game and you've got like a batting weight on your bat. <laughs> it's yeah. a little harder to swing. Maybe you're getting critiqued by the, on your swing a little bit by the batting coach. Then you get up there it's a little bit easier and a little bit smoother to swing that bat potentially. Want to boost your productivity and decision-making? Get vital insights from each episode delivered directly to your inbox. A great resource, whether you've listened to the episode or not. Go to benfanning.com slash insight. When you say intensity, this sounds really intense. Uh, going to people's homes, working with the families. What do you do to support your own mental well-being in a role that can be so darn intense? It's a great question, Ben. And sometimes I feel like I don't do enough 
Um, it's difficult operating in healthcare right now, perhaps more difficult than it's ever been. You know, other generations may disagree with that because there's been other crises before, but um, there's there's a lot that, of energy um, and attention that's required to uh, running an acute care you know, facility in which individuals are coming in for treatment most often because, you know, they're unsafe. You know, these, these are locked facilities. Um, and we have this incredible um, responsibility to keep people safe, but also to help them gain traction in their recovery. And then um, so keeping our, our patients, our consumer base uh, safe um, and being accessible to the community. Um, also, you know, the gravity of having, um, you know, 250 employees and a bunch of contracted folks and um, sustaining their livelihoods and keeping them safe as well. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's something that it's very difficult to kind of bracket away when you're, quote unquote, going out of leaving the office for the day uh, because you inevitably get calls and, and there are things going on. But mm -hmm. um, for me, that, you know, I guess the most kind of magic potion um, has been exercise mm. and getting sufficient sleep. I know that sounds um, um, elementary, um, but those two pillars in particular, if if I get off kilter, I I, I notice it um, with with those two areas as well. Um, and and some and relationships are all obviously very important to maintain outside of work as well. So. But you got to be very intentional about creating space. You talked about this in your book, going for a walk. Um, you know, yeah. Thanks uh, for mentioning how, that. Yeah, like yeah. Quit However, the, you can you can go about that. Um, you you got to find the way. You have to experiment a little bit sometimes, and mm -hmm. um, you know, mindfulness and meditation has been helpful as well. Gratitude journaling, all those things have been um, very very helpful for me. Yeah, I, I like you said, or exercise right out of the gate. Because a lot of times you have a problem in your head and people think, well, I need to go think about this problem some more. And sometimes thinking about it more is the worst thing you can do. Get out of your head, in your body, doing some exercise. And it's amazing how that can have such a refreshing, refreshing impact on your mental state when you do go back to work. And when you have to, whenever you exercise, what's your, what's your go-to activity? I love lifting. I love strength training, barbell training. Oh, right. it just it does something yep. to my nervous system that just it it, it calms my nervous system down. Uh, I just get tuned in. It's almost sort of a religious experience to me. Not to overstate it, um, mm. but but that's kind of where I found my my wheelhouse is in terms of I guess you could call it return on investment for my time spent um, in the gym. And I just like to tune everything else out. Sometimes I'll listen to a podcast. Um, and multitask, but most often I really yes. just like to be present in the moment. And oh, fantastic. Enjoying it. Yeah. Do you do more free weights, machines, combination, or what? what's your lifting? I, I'd say I do mostly free weights and barbells. And okay. um, I, I think that that challenges my body in, in the best way. And I think, you know, longevity, there's, there's a lot of evidence in mental health that, you know, supports that, you know, dialing in these elements of self-care are as effective as any other types of treatment modalities in, in many cases, you know, your diet, your um, exercising, mm -hmm. your sleep. Um, that, I mean, those can be as effective, not more effective than, than other things that we, um, other modalities that we provide in our space. Yeah. So, so I would be a little bit, um, 
unfair of, of me to ask that of, of others, including my team members and, and, uh, and not doing this, some of those things myself. Yes, it, it is. So many great things. And by the way, the, the, the workout metaphor applies so well to your intensity moment early in your career, because a lot of times people don't realize when you're working out and you're lifting, you're not getting stronger. You're actually weakening your body. You're tearing down your body when you work out. It's when you rest that your body repairs itself, right? Becomes stronger and you're able to face the next day or the next workout at a higher level because you've gone through that difficult time. So, uh, yeah, great, great. Line there. And I like what you said too about, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, hey, team, you need to go out and work out and get some exercise. But then you're there sitting, you know, you're at your desk 15 hours a day, 12 hours a day. You're not getting out. And uh, yeah, to send the message with what you're doing. <laughs> Something to be said for leading by example, at least to the yeah. you know, extent you can. Lead by example. All right. So what have been some of the more meaning, most meaningful aspects or also meaningful moments for your career? So I think a really critical inflection point for me um, was actually before I um, arrived in my position here, coming back full circle, mm -hmm. um, which was very gratuitous and remains that way, was when I was uh, working on my terminal degree, um, actually in, in behavioral health as a counseling leader. And uh, I, I was finishing up my coursework and working um, in a med surge um, hospital system uh, mm -hmm. in this region and uh, had made some progression in terms of leadership and good, good, developed some good relationships all the way up the chain. And I thought to myself, OK, um, now what am I going to do now that I yeah, I'm, I'm almost done with my terminal degree and, and um, it's time to. It's time to really take a next step, but, but you know, what is that going to be? And, and um, again, kind of relating back to your book, um, I, I took, a, instead of looking outward, what it is, I, I took a look around me and I mm. thought to myself, there's really nothing in the way of meaningful behavioral health services and this health in this pretty large, but independent healthcare system. And I could think of a, 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 um, a proposal or two that I think would be meaning, immediately impactful if I had the opportunity to implement that. And so, oh wow, I um, I, I had a couple conversations. Um, I drew up a proposal. Um, it did it didn't it require some capital. It required uh, some collaboration in the community, uh, and um, they they gave me the capital to work with. Um, at the end of the day, it was a very successful endeavor. Um, a lot of individuals, there's a crisis in the nation with individuals coming to emergency departments with mental health issues and waiting forever, yeah. um, to get care. And, um, it's, um, right now we're facing that in Virginia and in a lot of other states as well. So this particular program was, um, was essentially a, a jail diversion program, but also it was also an alternative to individuals coming through the emergency department for mental health evaluation. And so we were able to reduce our boarding time um, and prevalence of boarding for individuals boarding what, for what we call psychiatric reasons, needing to go somewhere else for treatment. Um, and so the ROI on that was, was very, very beneficial to the facility from a cost and risk perspective. 
Um, and so that was successful. We had a big public PR event and I learned that I could do those kinds of things pretty well and I was able to do more of them later. But um, once that went very well, uh, I was approached by administration and said, hey, um, we want you to birth behavioral health in this healthcare system. Hmm. And you're going to write your own job description and be our director of, of behavioral health and, and launch this. Voila. Y'all, that's the quit alternative 10X plan right there. What an amazing story of you. Sort of is really a, a, a story of being willing to put yourself out there, willing to take a chance uh, in the service of others and making a bigger impact and being able to really understand, it sounds like your stakeholders and, and communicate to them why this is, is supportive to them and the community and getting them to move forward on it. Uh, just a huge congratulations. Thank you so uh, much. On that. Wow. That is a defining moment in your career. Most certainly. And here you are today. Yeah. So, yeah. So, man, what a great, and I love how you keep sliding in the word ROI because that's a word that's near and dear to every executive's heart because it shows when you can get a return on investment, you're a good steward and you get to, maybe you get to do it again. And you can define that return in so many ways. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, yes, you can. All right. So where do you find the motivation for your work? Initially, my motivation came from uh, personally, uh, be a little vulnerable here and sharing um, a story with my own struggles with um, health from a young age. Um, I was uh, kind of sidestruck by Crohn's disease uh, in mm. a really severe form. And it kind of hijacked my life on and off through a really important developmental period, um, about ages 12 to uh, early college years. And um, so I, I had that exposure to being cared for um, mm -hmm. and also having these emotional experiences um, that I didn't really um, have an opportunity in my mind's eye to really relate to a lot of my peers or other folks mm -hmm. with. And um, that really got me interested in thinking about not only healthcare, but mental health care and what I understood for mental health care to be siloed, had been siloed away from other aspects of healthcare and not well integrated. Um, and so my experience through that um, kind of shaped and informed who I am as a person in, in, a, in a lot of ways um, uh, and also um, whetted my appetite um, and, and gave me a very personal why as to, I, I knew I wanted to be, be uh, uh, in the helping profession at, at mm. some level. I hadn't tuned it in quite yet, but as I progressed through my education I, and, and experience, I tuned it more and more and it, then it kind of progressed more organically after that. Yeah, as a uh, as one of my early mentors, who when I was going through coaching training and whatnot, he said, "Ben, we all coach from our own wounds." Mm. And yeah, I mean, what a beautiful story of something that was a huge, sunk a huge struggle. And at that age, I mean, there's already all all kinds of stuff going on inside our heads as teenagers and our bodies, and to struggle with that. And it's amazing how that's become such a powerful springboard. And you can you can help people more when you can relate to their pain. I mean, that's just perfectly said. That's just it. 
we spend so much time trying to not talk about or keep it quiet or even not experiencing it, experience it. And no one who wants to experience pain, but uh, but the idea that the pain can result in that entrepreneurial mindset that you had to get the community involved for that, for that project and all the great work you're doing up in Virginia beach. I mean, it's well, nicely done. Thank you so much. Uh, What's your, what's your advice for people out there that are, that are whatever they're struggling with right now? Um, I mean, mean, what's your advice for them in terms of how, you know, they're, maybe they're facing an obstacle right now and they're not quite sure uh, what to do next. That's kind of a broad question, but just kind of thinking about your own struggles and the struggles that you're seeing today. So uh, it's a great question, and it's um, I'll, I'll, you, you mentioned it's a broad question. So I'll start with a kind of a broad answer, then hopefully kind of uh, mm-hmm. tune it in a little bit more. Um, the world we live in now, obviously, we all know it's been turned upside down in the last two to three years. Um, I mm-hmm. think what we um, collectively came to kind of understand and experience is that we're a lot more more vulnerable than what we thought we were, mm-hmm. um, and we can get um, off track uh, collectively um, by something that's outside of our control. There's a lot outside of our control. I don't think that we really think about that a lot. It's um, or else we'd be stressed out all the time. Um, but the reality is, you know, this has escalated the prevalence and severity mm-hmm. of individuals struggling with behavioral health disorders. And when I say behavioral health, that's the umbrella of what we consider kind of mental health issues, emotional or uh, thought disorders such as schizophrenia and addiction. So all that's kind of under that that same umbrella. And so there's more of that now. Understandably, people were isolated. People, you know, were not able to work. Everything in their life had been disrupted. Kids Mm -hmm. weren't able to go to school. And so I think we're going to feel the reverberations of this for quite a while. And in terms of, you know, what to do, you know, if you're having difficulty, um, what I what I appreciate is that mental health and behavioral health has become much more normalized as part of our public discourse. Yeah, um, it and also it's, it, you know, there's legislative priority and, and resourcing being put into it. Um, and people, I, I think the, the stigma is being lifted with high profile individuals coming out and talking about their their issues with that. And um, so uh, what, what, what we really need to do is, as operators in, in this space is make sure that we secure um, meaningful access to care. Mm-hmm. Um, what we see right now um, is, a, is a lot of acute scenarios and crisis scenarios, understandably. Uh, there weren't as many resources during the pandemic, and there's still a lot of those are offline. The workforce is still a, a, a real issue for us. Um, but what we're working towards are more and more alternatives and upstream models um, so that individuals that are reaching out for help, they'll hopefully do that earlier. And there will mm-hmm. be people ready to help them when they reach out for help. And that will be a positive experience. Um, and and then maybe we can avoid it getting to the point uh, of a crisis um, or to a severe safety issue for someone. Uh, and, and, and that would be kind of the ideal scenario. Um, but really I, I appreciate the courage 
that it takes for someone to ask for help for the first time, whether yeah. picking up that phone, talking to a family member, or colleague, you know, coming into our facility. Um, our, we're open 24-7. And we had, I think, 25 walk-ins yesterday into our lobby for people just coming in, um, yeah. seeking help or, or seeking guidance for help. And so I, I think that that's obviously, you know, the first step. It's an obvious answer, but it's not an easy answer. Um, is is to reach out for help. What's the one trait you wish you could instill in every employee, and why? So I think that um, instead of a trait, if you'll bear with me, I would suggest an employee um, take a a work engagement stance and lens that is developmentally minded. Uh, and so, and, and sequen sequentially so, and, and that involves mm -hmm. a lot of traits. And um, so it's kind of a cop mm -hmm. out of an answer, not identifying one. Um, okay. But as we kind of talk through my experience and progression in my career, um, mm -hmm. I think it's important for employees to um, gain mastery um, over their their skills um and that requires that dedication the commitment um the the integrity uh mm -hmm. the discipline the patience so the gaining mastery over whatever that job is and and the core components of that um and then your next opportunity is ideally that your chain of command or other folks they've noticed the hard work you put in and and yeah. that you have and you gain notoriety for that and then that puts you in a position to then be proactive and maybe propose something mm. um, and get in front of, you know, the individuals that are decision makers and stakeholders. Um, and it doesn't have to be something that that first step on doing something like that doesn't have to be something that is earth shattering or earth you know, world changing. It can be something um, very simple but important, low hanging fruit um, that could result in improved uh, quality, safety, um, out consumer outcomes, all the above. Mm -hmm. um, um, but it can really, I think, taking that type of approach, which is a little bit of the art of the long view, um, mm -hmm. so to speak. And yeah, and I can see that gratification. That's 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 kind of tough. Um, so it's, it's like delayed gratification, yeah. but it's taking the long view of your career. And you use use the term developmental minded, meaning I think under and I think you not, you laid it out nicely of. What does that kind of career progression really look like? And it's kind of like a uh, uh, expanding outline, whereas you don't get to see the next step on what you could propose until you're doing a really great job with the job you have. And then you nail that, you get that down, you build the credibility, you build the trust inside your organization, you get some deposits of success. And then when you, you know, like yourself, make that proposal, it's much more likely to get a positive response potentially uh, for what you're for the impact you want to make or the project you want to do or maybe how you're going to write your own job description like uh, like you got to do, Kurt. Uh, so uh, wrapping this up, what's your parting thought for listeners today? Well, I would suggest that people get back out. Um, if, if you haven't already, get engaged with each other, with your community, uh, with your work. I mean, that's what we're here talking about. 
um, mostly, uh, but all these things are interrelated. Um, and I would suggest that people, employees, really, really lean on each other, hmm. um, be very team-minded, uh, be supportive, practice and conduct yourselves with integrity, both personally and professionally. Um, keep hope. I think we've become disillusioned in a sense. And I think that's part of what we're seeing with with turnover and 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 some other things are, are, are these conditions that have kind of emerged. Um, but I think that you know, the hope aspect, um, if you're a leader, having that that culture of uh, of team and support um, and balancing that with still holding people responsible, mm-hmm. I think is really, really tough right now because we we feel like we need to support everyone. Um, and we do because you know life's been very hard for a long time. and um, but at the same time, we have a job to do. and we have um, customers or consumers that need our services, and we need to do that job uh, reliably, safely, at a high quality high fidelity. Um, so for leaders, you know, we're emerging. Um, it's a leap of faith, you know, to start really holding people accountable at a high level. Um, and that may be, mean, you know, more folks are leaving or turnover, but um, I, I think it, it's critical that we move forward now and not be frozen in, in this paralysis of what we've experienced in the past couple of years. There, there you have it, everybody. Lean on each other, move forward, get out, and make a positive impact. Kurt, thanks for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure, Ben. Thank you so much for having me. If you're an executive at a crossroads in your career and thinking about quitting, do this before you do anything else. Head over to benfanning.com slash quit to receive a free signed copy of my number one best-selling book, The Quit Alternative, The Blueprint for Creating the Job You Love Without Quitting. You'll learn the critical questions you must answer before you make such an impactful decision. Go to benfanning.com slash quit to get this valuable resource for just the cost of shipping. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.